You're listening to Fiona's R&D Tax Credit Podcast. I'm Matthew DeMello. We're here with Raheem Walji, the Director of R&D Tax Incentives at Cross Border Solutions. Today, we're looking at the R&D Tax Credit legal battle between the IRS and Trinity Marine Group. This is part of our Cautionary Tales series where we put companies with claiming missteps under the microscope. First, let's get a little more insight into Trinity Marine Group. What did this company do, Raheem? So Trinity Marine Group is actually a group of companies and a subsidiary of Trinity Industries, which is a shipbuilding company. So essentially, Trinity Industries, the larger group, you know, the manufacture railroads, boats, highway products, things like that. They were actually founded back in the 1930s, and they were headquartered in Texas. And what activities did Trinity Marine Group perform to claim the credit? Sure. So the case itself that we're going to be talking about is the Trinity Marine Group versus the U.S. It's a 2009 case, and essentially they're seeking a refund for the QREs that were disallowed from tax years 1994 and 1995. And this is at the federal level. So in this particular situation, Trinity built six ships and believed that all of those ships qualified for the R&D credit at the business component level. So in terms of your question about the activities, they were asked to spearhead specific research projects or boats by Halter Marine, which is a company out of New Orleans. We'll call Trinity, they label them first models or first in class or prototypes, right? There's different names for these, but in the shipbuilding world, it's first in class. And the goal is that, you know, future boats would get duplicated off of this original model. There's no guarantee that it actually goes into that future production, but, uh, you know, that's why they're called first in class. And so on these six ships, there were qualified expenditures that Trinity believed that they were incurring related to the design and construction done on that project for Halter Marine. And so they claimed the entire cost of those first-in-class ships based on something called the significantly all rule, which allows you to, you know, when you reach a certain point of, of research, you essentially are spending substantially all of your time such that you know, the Internal Revenue Code specifically allows you to claim 100% of the costs. So I know that was long, but that's sort of the, the situation that we're looking at here in this case. I was actually going to ask for my own edification what significantly all rule ran into. But as you explained, Trinity Marine Group built the boats and submitted the routine claim, but ran into a problem down the line. The IRS denied the claim. Trinity thought the IRS was wrong and they went to court, but the court ruled with the taxpayer. Raheem, what made the court side with Trinity? There's some technical language that I'll be using, but I'll do my best to explain. So ultimately, the court sided with Trinity over the use of business components and their use of existing components, right? And so how this works is the IRS specifically argued that prototype ships, right, these first-in-class ships, did not qualify as business components because they were made for a customer instead of being made and sold out of inventory. So, you know, they're they're sort of a custom project. On this particular argument, the court sided with the taxpayer, you know, in this case, Trinity, and said, you know, great IRS, nice argument, but there's really no authority for you to base that off of. That's that's never been an issue before. So there's really no argument there. With respect to the existing components, the IRS argued that the majority or the bulk of the design activities 
used existing parts, right? So existing components, as opposed to creating custom parts and pieces and then developing the process for assembling around it, right? So they took existing gears and panels and metal and all these other materials, right, to build it. But the, the IRS, you know, argued that it should have to be customized. And so here, this particular argument, the court ruled again with Trinity, and they said, look, existing parts can result in many different combinations or vessel designs, right? You, there's not only one way to put all these parts together. So there's research and development that has to go into that process. And so just because they're existing components, that doesn't remove the research part of it. The court ruled that only two of the six boats qualified under Section 41. What happened here? Great question. So there's something called this all-or-nothing approach, right, the, the substantially all rule. So Trinity argued that the cost of each boat qualified under the tax code, specifically Section 41, which says that if 80% or more of the activities are deemed qualified research, then the entire project or the entire set of activities can be claimed as qualified research and therefore the expenses associated with them. Trinity, unfortunately here, did not provide detailed costs uh, or expenses or documentation that could have been used to support something called a shrinking back, right, or a shrink back rule that, that came out of this. And so what that means is, in this particular case, the way the data and information was presented and the way everything is being argued and, and calculated, they could only find that two of the ships qualified in this sort of substantially all manner. And so had they been able to look at additional information, expenses, you know, line items, or, or at least some additional detail, they could have done something called shrinking back which means they could have scaled back from the 100% down to 80 or 70 or 60, whatever the right number would have been or a reasonable number would have been, they could have at least gotten to that number. But here, based on the way everything was being presented, it was sort of an all or nothing. We can either give you all the credit for, for the expenses or we can give you none because we don't have enough information to make that determination of, of the 80%. And so unfortunately, the reason that they couldn't provide this documentation was because the information was, was destroyed during Hurricane Contrita, right? So, you know, sad circumstances of events that happened that, okay, all these documents that you needed for the 90s were, were destroyed, right? And so the difficulties, nonetheless, that's why the court said that they couldn't give them credit for everything for all of them because they couldn't find all that information. And in that absence, the court rules. Let's take a closer look at the shrink back rule. If we can give a what is it and why is it important for qualifying companies? So for shrink back itself, you know, when a larger business component or let's say a product, right, something that it doesn't meet the four part test, but maybe certain subparts for it or certain subsets of the product, you know, there was research and, and, and development and expenses done. And those pieces could qualify for the four part test. And so the reason it's helpful is it can really be a big factor in differentiating between a company that gets all of their expenses qualified and, and therefore, you know, that credit can be calculated that way or, or none of their expenses qualified. The shrink back allows to find some middle ground or, or at least a reasonable assessment of, of what's there. And that is, is how it works, right? And so at the process of experimentation, if you claim your business component at too high a level, you could risk you know, not qualifying all of it. So software is a good example sometimes, or even these products, right? There's maybe four different systems that go into developing a car. 
there's the gear shafts, but then there's also the interior, there's safety systems, right? But if you just said the whole car is R&D, that might not work, but you could shrink back to the new sensors in the safety system or, or things like that. And so I think that's what the shrink back rule allows you to do is, is sort of find that reasonable ground so you're not stuck with this kind of all or nothing in certain situations. To make a video game analogy, it's really saving right before you get to the boss fight. I'm, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> but, but making sure you can start or at least claim that much credit without having to go the full way. Exactly. A global pandemic, a grim economic forecast, feeling the squeeze, an R&D tax credit can help lower your burn. If you qualify, the IRS and some state governments will give you a tax credit equal to 10% of your company's spend on development activities. You can even take the credit against payroll taxes if you're in the red. All you have to do is claim it. So what's stopping you? If an expensive application process is turning you off, sorry, now you really have no excuse. Cross-Border Solutions AI-driven R&D tax credit software eliminates the need for pricey consultants and allows you to apply for R&D credits all over the world for one low fee. After all, why should you have to spend your whole R&D tax credit on getting your R&D tax credit? It's your money. Keep more of it with Cross-Border Solutions, the global leader in AI-driven tax solutions. Request a demo today. Visit xbs.ai rd. That's xbs.ai rd. The case also applied the Cohen rule. What is this rule and how does it prove helpful for companies in terms of expenses? So the Cohen rule is ultimately a, a very long standing case. And, and I'll give a couple of facts real quick about it and then, and then tell you kind of how it was applied. So in, in the Cohen case, there's an individual that didn't have receipts and expenses for certain meals and entertainment and a few other business items that were related to, to his industry. And so that being said, he claimed some deductions for some of these expenses, right? Even though he didn't have the receipts or didn't have everything there. And so what happened was initially the court denied and said, you know, you don't have any documentation, you don't have anything to back it up, you know, so, so we can't really consider these expenses valid. And so it went up to a higher court and ultimately what happened is the higher court said, yes, okay, great. We know there's not documentation. We know there's not, you know, a receipt for every single thing. You could reasonably understand, reasonably estimate, you know, based on how many trips he did and what an average cost of the trip was, you could come to some sort of reasonable estimate of what happened. And so here it serves as an additional line of defense for, for Trinity in some of the areas, because if you had no estimates whatsoever, then you risk getting a full, you know, a zero, right? You can't really help calculate what that might be. The Cohen will at least says, okay, let's calculate reasonably what this could be and try to use that. You know, we understand that it may be a little understated or a little overstated, but at least let's try to, to do that. And you can at least now have another opportunity to improve some of your expenses. Out. That's right. This was a major victory for taxpayers. What can taxpayers learn from this case? So I think there's a couple of things that the taxpayers and, and businesses looking to claim the R&D credit can learn from, from Trinity. So the first is that integration of existing components. Hopefully what members of the audience today see and other businesses interested in this, they see that as a company developing a product, you don't have to take original parts and every part has to be custom developed and designed and manufactured. And you know, you think of maybe like aerospace where certain things have to be such so meticulously designed and all custom designed for the next satellite or whatever it might be, you can use existing products that can 
you know, yield different outcomes, different gears, different bolts, different widgets can, can yield a different design depending on how it's put together. And that research process is an effort in and of itself and can qualify. Another thing that I hope audience members take away and, and taxpayers take away is that there's not just one way to look at a project, right? You could look at a software release as just one software release, or it could be 10 different feature or function updates, right? And so there's not just one way to look at things and how you define it, you know, could impact your qualification, but it's a lot more complex than just a project is a project is a project. And I know there's just a degree of inevitability, at least in so far that we can verify that, you know, these documents were lost with Katrina. But what can we learn from Trinity Marine Group, no matter what the, you know, hurricane ate my documentation problem could be? It's one more or less that I'm sure a lot of companies can face. What can we learn from Trinity Marine Group about the importance of documentation? I think the main takeaway here is a little bit of detail would have gone a long way. If Trinity had some sort of detail or documentation or attempted to you know, reasonably estimate what some of these costs were at different levels, then I think they could have applied the shrink back method and, and at least not had this all or nothing result. They could have gotten a little bit more of a reasonable benefit back from, because they did spend a lot of time and money on building these other boats. And then I think another smaller subset of things to, to to cover would be, you know, keeping track of costs of materials or, you know, estimates of different types, you know, how much is steel and, you know, how much average steel goes into a ship of this size or versus aluminum versus, you know, all these other different things. I think keeping track of those can be helpful. And then when you're looking at some of the other areas, there are risk of failure, right? Maybe another thing. If you have a risk of failure, certain things that may not be experimental can qualify. And what that means is, is related to the substantially all rule. Just because, you know, paint, for example, doesn't have a risk of failure, because you're in the substantially all category, you can still include some of those sort of non-experimental costs. Now, what do you think companies can take away from this case, regardless of industry? Companies can understand, hopefully from this, that keeping supporting documentation that's detailed or at least one step beyond just a general document, you know, or a general overview can be very helpful. I think now, hopefully with the technological age that exists today, there are hopefully redundancies and backups, you know, in case certain adverse events and effects and, and you know, uh, natural disasters and things like that happen. I think it's important to, to do that. And then being able to document different steps of a process or a project would be helpful because, then at least you can implement that shrink back rule and have some sort of fallback or outlet. If you're not able to meet that substantially all rule for some reason or another, then at least you have some way to back that up and get some benefit for the work. And how could technology have changed the trajectory of this ruling? So I think one of the things is, as we talked about, right, redundancy. So being able to back up your data, having that stored in the cloud, you know, those types of things I think would have would have really, really helped back up the claim and help Trinity support a lot of their, their development on some of those boats. And then I think that assistance and support that they would have had would have been enough to get away from the all or nothing rule. So whether you have AI at that point or you have machine learning or things like that, you know, that wouldn't have been there. But with, with the level of, of technology we have today, hopefully companies are taking advantage of this and they're able to leverage that to make sure that these types of things are going to happen more and more, unfortunately. You know, 
hurricanes happen, earthquakes happen, all these things are happening and being able to store and backup information as much as possible. Though that may not be the biggest concern at the time, of course, with those big events happening, this can at least secure your claims and things like that in the future. I am looking forward to the COVID episode for which a company says a, a their documentation was somehow lost in the pandemonium of the last year or so, all things COVID somehow. Note to multinational companies everywhere, if you think the coronavirus has affected your bottom line, take a look at how it's devastated the economies of governments around the world. And where do you think tax authorities will look to make up for all that lost revenue? That's right, your transfer pricing. You can't afford to be non-compliant, but then you probably can't afford to pay for an overpriced consultant who bills by the hour either. Oops, sorry, Big Four. We've got the answer. Cross-border solutions, AI-powered transfer pricing software keeps you in compliance by preparing accurate, hyper-localized reports that protect you from transfer pricing audits, penalties, and adjustments. And our technology is available for one flat fee, a fraction of what you'd pay a big-name consultant. Again, apologies, Big Four. Stay in compliance and on budget with Cross-Border Solutions AI-driven transfer pricing software. It's no wonder we're the global leader in AI-driven tax solutions. There we go again. I'm so sorry, Big. You know what? Wait, who am I kidding? Sign up for a free demo of Cross-Border Solutions transfer pricing technology today at xbs.ai slash tp that's xbs.ai slash tp Raheem, what do you find particularly interesting about this case if anything one of the i think most interesting things for me in this case was there's a few different types of ships that they're developing and um, one of the examples that they talked about was having these soda machines and the, all these different lines running through the, the boat you know whether it was electrical related or um, having these these drink liquids through getting poured through them. And so how that impacted sort of the whole design of these different compartments and different things like that. I, I just found that really interesting that how something so overlooked sometimes and maybe seems trivial or seems, you know, irrelevant can have a substantial impact on how designers and things need to think, especially when you're thinking about a seaworthy vessel, right? So I think that was what was one of the most interesting to me from an industry standpoint. For sure. You know what makes me eternally intrigued here, and I just have to ask, they didn't seem like categorically a defense contractor from the website. I know I kind of have some familiarity with defense contractors. Does having a previous relationship with the federal government, which seems kind of baked into the history of the business, tend to have an effect on the outcome of these things? It really doesn't. Sometimes these, these government contractors actually have a tougher time qualifying and making their project meet requirements because of the way the government sort of owns everything that they're doing in terms of the intellectual property and and the research. And so, you know, I would hope that there's maybe a little bit of favorableness if they deserve this credit that, you know, the outcome comes in their favor. But no, sometimes it's, it's, it's a lot harder when you're dealing with defense contractors and government contractors just because of the way that the work is structured and who ends up owning and paying for everything at the end of the day. And Raheem, just to kind of summarize this episode, what do you want other companies to learn from the Trinity Marine case? That's a really good question. I think if I was a company and I was looking at this situation and trying to figure out, you know, what really matters to me? How do I make this better? How do I, how do I protect myself or, or better my credit? I would say, number one, just because you're building a prototype or something, you know, that's, that's brand new doesn't mean that all of it's going to qualify. So making sure that you are able to retain documentation that helps support each phase in the process that's using technology to hopefully back it up. 
and understanding that integrating components doesn't really, really preclude you from claiming this credit. I think those are the big things. So just because it's a prototype doesn't mean it's always going to qualify at every single piece. Understand that you can use things that exist in the world to, to create something new. And then documenting it at more than just a boat level or an overall project level. Understanding that at some times, some pieces of this may not meet the requirements. And so rather than risk it all on kind of this all or nothing, try to do your best to break it down into smaller bite-sized chunks. The dangers of big picture thinking, and I say that as a big picture person. Hi, I'm Matthew DeMello, and you may know me as the host of the Fiona Show Cross-Border Solutions Weekly Transfer Pricing Podcast. And while I love to discuss transfer pricing, this podcast isn't the only place you can hear me doing it. Cross-Border Solutions recently relaunched Transfer Pricing University, a live webinar series where you can learn about modern-day transfer pricing, everything from methodologies to comparables to preparing documentation to meet country-specific regulations. Good stuff, I know. Chief Economist Mimi Song leads the sessions. I just ask the occasional obvious question. Since our program is NASBA certified, you can earn one CPE credit for joining each session. Pretty sweet. So what are you waiting for? Join us for Transfer Pricing University Weekly. Classes are free, so now you really have no reason to miss it. Sign up at xbs.ai slash tpu. Subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. That's Fiona's R&D Tax Credit Podcast, and we'll fill you in on the R&D tax credits in every episode. This podcast was engineered by Andrew O'Donnell. Christy Clements is our associate producer. Marilyn Mitchum-Strom is our executive producer, and some guy named Matt DeMello does the hosting around here. I don't really know him. For CPE credits, email the Fiona Show at xbs.ai, and we will catch you next time.